Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Ron Federici. This episode is the first of a two-part series with Dr. Federici, so be sure to join us next week for part two. Dr. Ronald Federici is regarded as the country's expert in developmental neuropsychology for children from adoption trauma backgrounds. He has written books and hundreds of publications regarding the damaging effects of childhood maltreatment, ranging from developmental trauma disorder, FASD and drug exposure affecting attachment in children, traumatic autism, and reconstructive therapy. Dr. Federici is CEO of Care for Children International, which offers comprehensive services for children and families in the USA and abroad, specializing in complex cases that have been unresponsive to past interventions. Dr. Federici is also the father of nine children, eight of which were adopted from very traumatic backgrounds and have grown into very productive adults. Dr. Federici also teaches and lectures internationally. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Karen Buckwalter back with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm really excited today. Um, we are going to be doing a, an interview with, with Dr. Ronald Federici, um, who has a lot of both personal experience and professional experience with children with attachment issues, but also a myriad of other issues that are really important for us to be considering as we're working with these children. So welcome, Dr. Federici. Well, hi there, Karen. It's always a pleasure to help out and be with you. And our years of working collaboratively has been great and working with tough cases for betterment. So I'm glad to be here. Yes. So, so share with the audience a little bit about your background, because you have some pretty amazing experiences, uh, both personally and professionally, around some of these issues. Yeah, sure. Well, listen, I've been a board-certified neuropsychologist and developmental specialist in children with adoption trauma for 32 years. Uh, I've worked with some real complex cases for brain issues, developmental disabilities, so but mostly adoption trauma. I've done training in prison systems, foster care, mental institutions, all that, and the, uh, which led me to think that there's a lot more to these kids. I started working internationally and domestically and internationally in places from all over the country in the worst places for foster care and adoption trauma, but also Eastern Bloc, Russia, Romania, Africa, China, Vietnam. I've got eight adopted kids from all over the different parts of most terrible places in Eastern Europe. We fostered over 40. And uh, the last count I got in my professional clinic, we've seen over 8,197. So, and, but you know, more than that, being a father of raising very eight, very damaged, physically, emotionally, and sexually abused kids, severely abused and traumatized that have all now, I got nine kids total, that they've found their pathways through hard work with the family, but also within themselves on a buddy system. But also now that they've reached a level of helping out with me and my clinic, but also you learn a lot more from all the patients I've seen around the world, and it actually spent a lot of time in institutional care, living with the kids and breathing with them, which I think has been better than any course. Yes, yes. So, so you know, um, eight kids, um, and you now have nine kids, and you you have so much experience with actually living with these kids, which is just amazing, and they're doing so well. They have a 
Dot, you have a documentary, right? With three right, a documentary, friends. The Long Journey Home, about the three remaining brothers who lived in a, a literally a cage in a cell. And a lot of people have seen it, and they all survived. One's a physician, one's a special education teacher, and one works who's intellectually disabled. And, and one of them, the second one's married with two kids now. So they found their way, and they've gone back to Romania and visited their birth family. But yeah, they, but you know what? They, uh, they said they had to seal the loop, and we were almost, you know, it's interesting. All my kids tell me, we never could see you as parents, because I guess they all would have been diagnosed as attachment disorder. They saw us as teachers of a new way of life. And all of them, even our foster kids said, you were the best teachers we ever had. Not parents, not friends, teachers. It's interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. All yeah. of them said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Dr. Federici, you're you're known to be a straight shooter. Some people, you know, say, wow, he's awfully direct or or feel a little polarized by some of your your comments. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. What, well, you know, I, you that? know I, t I take that as a definite compliment because, you know, number one, being who I am, Italian by heritage, Marine by training, you know, retired Marine medical officer, but also working in the trenches. I find with my population, so many people have had a lot of ambiguous gray areas, or I call it fluff talk. They don't want to hear it. So I'm just, I'm very compassionate, but straight up and straight away with fact figures and what, not only what's going on, but where to go. I call it, you know, pathway or developmental reconstruction. And so a lot of people are blown away by a lot of information and overwhelmed. And a lot of them say, I need time to process it. Some say, oh my God, you're hurting my feelings and making me feel like I did everything wrong. I said, no, 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 I'm just telling you what we need to do right. And some people that are just, you know, uh, you know, it's too tough for them to handle. And mm -hmm. I, I never found myself to be insulting, but very direct and very straightforward, just so we can cut through the, the, the garbage and, and get to the treatment issues and the reconstructive work. But, you know, again, it, you know, I do my best, but some, every, it's not for everybody. A lot of people want a lot of handholding. Uh, I try to do that, but in a very educative way, much like my patients, because I find my families need as much structure and direction as my kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, people you know, have a hard time with it and uh there's certainly disagreements about people say well you know I, I remember one big disagreement with the british school of psychiatry when i did bbc shows they said well we don't believe in any of that stuff they just need a lot of time to develop love and affection and i said none of us will be around long enough for that to occur unless mm -hmm. we teach them so it is a very unique way of looking at it as a developmentalist who's straight up Right, and so also you are uh, often saying that you're talking about a very specific segment of kids um, that have very extreme behaviors. And what we're going to get into also is um, comorbidity, many other things going on besides this sort of catch-all reactive attachment disorder, which absolutely, which is, absolutely. Right. So, so we know there's problems with the diagnosis, even when it's being used sort of properly. There's problems that Carly Zena has written about and others that it, it's not really so good to even begin with. Right. We have the situation of using it in really 
seeing it as a catch-all for everything the child is doing and really not having a good assessment that maybe some of this is coming from completely different places than um, attachment issues. Well, you know, Karen, I, I, I think you're right on the money. One of the biggest problems is, is that, you know, Charlie Zine and I go way back. I brought him to Romania and he started looking at attachment from a whole different developmental trauma, brain, behavior but really a social rejection, social isolation perspective. So the whole thing about attachment disorder that I think has been wrong, and we try to change it in the Bible of Psychiatry, DSM-5, to complex developmental trauma disorder, meaning they miss their development. But the checklists remain, and I think a lot of problems like ADHD and reactive attachment disorder and cognitive disorder, if you just look at the outcome, they all look the same, and it, sadly, a lot of these kids are called attachment disorder when they have brain dysfunction, fetal alcohol, which kind of rules it out, drug exposure, which kind of rules it out, uh, intellectual disability, which kind of rules it out. I'm not negating at all that these kids have attachment-related issues, but I think it's social relationship problems based on A, their brain doesn't get it, B, they've been so traumatically traumatized that they don't want to be anywhere near people at all, or see that they have what I call the, the, you know, what they talked about in the 50s, hospitalism or institutionalization, whether it be foster care or in a foreign place. They're so used to being in a cocoon that's isolated, like the dog in the pound, they don't know what to do like an autistic person. And I write a lot about now that one of the comorbidities is traumatic autism, that these kids have been so developmentally damaged from brain, alcohol, drugs, uh, the direct trauma, direct abuse, but isolation, it wipes out that emotional intelligence, where, uh, that part of the brain where they don't know how to socially relate like an autistic person, which I find to be not only a big comorbidity, but a very good new avenue of intervention. Yes, yes, and I, I don't know if you coined this term or who did, but I remember years ago, uh, the term institutional induced autism. That was me in 1993, April. Yes. So I found that really helpful because, you know, is it exactly how we're talking about autism with, with children born in the United States with in a, in a more healthy circumstance? Not exactly, but I mean, there's such an overlap with some of it. So is that yeah. what you're saying that we have to because I know a lot of your evaluations and things are talking about autism. Right. What, right. And when I wrote the first article, which people thought, again, I was a lightning rod and they took a lot of power shots at me saying that's impossible. There's only genetic autism. I said, you've never lived in a Romanian orphanage in a cage for 10 years like my children, because that's what started me. When I started working in Romania, I'm thinking they're all rock and rolling, spinning, flapping, gazing, staring. And I'm with my, my friend who's the head neurologist at Harvard. And I said, Phil, this is traumatic autism. And he said, Ron, let's do this. He says, because what happens, it's really called a regressive pattern to a safety state where they don't have to deal with people. Their brain has been injured by some factor. We know that some of Karen Purvis's brilliant studies about cortisol and stress hormones and God rest her soul, she, her and I worked together from 94 on, that she said, you know, we take away a lot of their brain chemistry when they're wiped out and stressed and it kind of wipes the slate clean. And so we started talking about traumatic autism is when there's so much biological induced trauma, direct trauma, toxic trauma from alcohol or drug, but isolationism causes the children to totally lose that mental set that people do exist and it's safe to attach 
or it's safer to fight, fight, flight. And that's where I started. Then we continued it over the course of time and look at it now. And now we're finding out in our research, in, it's funny, Karen, in 2014 and 2015, all the big psychiatry people started looking at the connectivity that 81% of kids with alcohol or drug exposure patterns have autism characteristics, henceforth traumatic induced autism based on institutional care, whatever that is. And right. it's a very important thing to, to look at as a comorbidity, but not the classic garden variety autism, but something induced by trauma that we have to, again, teach them out of it. And it's the only right. form that gets better. Right. And something induced by lack of interaction. Absolutely. Isolation. Common you know, sense. You put so, a nice puppy in a cage for three years, they're not going to be normal when they come out. It's that well, same paradigm. Yeah. And, you know, I think, too, as you were talking, I was having visions of those early films by Spitz, of those Renee Spitz and these babies just laying there. And, and even though they're still young, you can just see, like, I mean, they're all, they're vacant. There's, there's something really huge happening major happening to those those babies um, mm -hmm. with that isolation and that lack of contact that that's right and it gets back to those 50 studies and what charlie zena when he started working in romania he wrote the book on the bucharest early intervention project he said the longer time of social neglect will not only regress the brain regress the social behaviors but he said and that's when he started changing this tune he says this is well beyond attachment disorder this is developmental failure they lost acquired skill or never developed a normal skill of socialization, playing, cooing, eye contact, sensory work. Some of the stuff from the 50s is really still relevant and even more relevant for our kids today, whether it be domestic or international. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you mentioned, in DSM-5, we tried to get developmental trauma disorder in there. Bethel Vanderkolk kind of spearheaded that effort. It didn't work. And yeah. then we've got this other construct of complex trauma where they're saying all of these different domains are impacted by trauma. They have the eight domains that are impacted by trauma. Um, but you're, you're also adding this idea. I guess you're almost adding the idea that there's almost brain damage to a degree or, or some kind of brain, uh, brain needing retrained. Well, what, what, what are you thinking about this? Well, in 1995 and six, I started writing about the neuropsychology of bonding and attachment disorders because we found when we started looking at these kids and testing them neuropsychologically, which is the importance of evaluation, we found out they missed, they had problems with language, comprehension, perceptivity, especially facial recognition, body language, social skills. And then we realized some things in the brain didn't exist. Short-term memory, processing, organizational thought, logical uh, abstractive reasoning. And then if you don't have those cognitive processes for especially language, learning, listening, logic, how are you going to develop social relationships if you don't understand and comprehend language? And the other aspect that we really looked at was visual perception, not eyes where you see with glasses. They didn't have the experience base, and it was wiped out in the hard drive when we started looking at brain studies at Detroit Children's Hospital in 96 by Dr. Chigani. One-third to two-thirds of the emotional brain in traumatized kids was gone. Karen, it was gone. And it's been documented in the Journal of Neuroimaging by Dr. Harry Chigani, C-H-U-G-A-N-I. 
starting in 97, continuing to date, that trauma wipes out the limbic and emotional brain to where they don't get it. And so you put the neuropsychology of bonding and attachment that the kids don't understand. People say they lack empathy. I said, no, no. Their brain doesn't have it in there to understand that. That's a social construct. Well, they're impulsive. That's a, that's, that's a regulatory issue. And then, well, they're, not, they're, they're indiscriminately friendly. That's another social regulatory. So we did find both by testing, but also by brain and, neuro, and real neuromedical stuff, it does exist that there's a medical correlate that affects the attachment patterns. It really mm -hmm. does connect. So the neuropsychology right. of bonding and attachment is really something to look at in many of our kids that are, we'll say, compromised. So let's look at, um, before we move into some ideas about how to work with this, you have probably evaluated more of these kids than about anybody at this point. So do you see any common, like the kids come in and, and the parents say, we've seen so-and-so, are there common things that you just think are being totally missed that like, you know, just about every parent, nobody would have explained this or told them that or, or evaluations that you're doing that at this point, you know, you know, like what, what's always, what's so often being missed that you find, I guess okay. that's what I'm trying to ask. It's, okay. That, 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 that's the best question. And that's what I, I, I like to address critically and where, you know, it does cause some, uh, we'll say differences of opinion. Over what's missed is overdiagnosis. I call it the big five: ADHD, reactive attachment disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, and conduct disorder. These kids are are what's missed is the core issue of their thinking, reasoning, intellectual, cognitive capacity, and psychological soul, if you would, or absence of by using the checklist, the checklist of symptoms that they we know they exhibit a modicum. A variety, an abundance of symptoms. So what's missed is the, the, the cause versus the outcome. No one stops to look at where it's coming from. They're seeing the outcome variables, number one. Number two, what's missed, alcohol and drug exposure evaluations. They're missed or minimized grossly or done incorrectly because they say, my kid doesn't have the facial features. Less than 30% do. You know, less than the other, the secondary consequences, which are problems with self-control, inhibition, social emotional behaviors, mood fluctuations, language processing comprehension, cause and effect thinking, and just general common sense. That's missed and caused and called, uh, um, the, you know, they're missing that neuropsychology problem, not learning disabilities, but brain issues and causing, mm -hmm. calling it bad behavior or they're not listening. And also what's missed is too much medication as opposed to focal medication. These kids come in to see me, and I have probably seen more from what they tell me, uh, you know, thousand, over almost 9,000 in, in my tenure. They come in two, three, four, five, medication for every diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And what that does is cause the kids confusion, disorganization, irritability, and agitation, so they are basically toxic. And what I think is what's missed the most is mm -hmm. that the kids, and this is very simple, the kids are very anxious, very scared, and here's what's my simple thing that I tell parents. I'm sorry, they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to socially relate. 
They don't know how to behave and they don't know how to think because the hard drive isn't working. It's been stripped away by trauma, both my area as a neuropsychologist, Dr. Purvis has talked about what cortisol and stress did and trauma wiping out the brain. Bessel uh, van der Kolk talks about that too in conjunction. And Bruce Perry, my good buddy, we did a lot of kids in the Waco kids, he talked about you know, their pervasive ritualistic abuse wipes that out. And so what's missed is all those factors that wipe the, clay, the slate clean in the kids, in the traumatized kid's brain. And people are focusing so much on the outcome behaviors instead of what they don't get upstairs. You know, too, and just um, to go back to the, the first thing about the fetal alcohol effects, um, you know, we just can't seem to get away from this idea that it's those facial features. And, you know, I know you're um, familiar with Ira Chesnoff's work, too, who lectures on this. And like, it's like these, this very small window during pregnancy that you use alcohol that will produce that. Right. And there's like all throughout the pregnancy, different things that the alcohol can cause, you know, that you're not going to see with those facial features. No, you're right. And I, being a Chicago boy, Ira and I go way back, you know, I mean, at Northwestern. Uh, mm -hmm. But let me tell you what, you know, when you drink, you know, the, and here's a differentiation that a lot of people don't get to. The, you know, it also, too, is the type and intensity of use, but usually during the first trimester and people tend to taper. So there's no predictable course, but it also is the level of toxicity during the early formative stage of, you know, genetic development or, you know, uh, so, you, you know, and then people taper off. But also, too, a lot of people don't understand that there's a definite differentiation between alcohol exposure kids and drug exposure kids. We know that alcohol is much more toxic and, and damaging to structural aspects of the brain. But drug exposure, especially methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, crack cocaine, and snowballing where they mix it all together, that affects the biochemistry. So they're going to look fine, but be wild and crazy because their biochemistry of all the mood chemicals is whacked out. So people often don't understand that there's a little bit of a, a split sometimes because mm -hmm. we know alcohol can go that way and less than 30% have facial features, but it will affect a broad encompassing aspect of cognitive operations, language, attention, memory, learning, executive skills, perception, learn, you know, all that stuff as well as psychosocial. Drugs tend to a lot more focus on the on the mood and emotional dysregulation because that's a different type of toxicity, you know. And so people get hung up on, well, they look fine, so they can't be FAS. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. You got to look at what we call the secondary consequences. What are they exhibiting that we can't explain from just bad behavior? And that's what we have to go back and look at careful history. Uh, and smoking has is often this. Karen, smoking is a real toxic element. Malnutrition is a real toxic element. And so a lot of these other things go along under the auspices or the umbrella of alcohol, drug-related birth defects, smoking, malnutrition, you know, um, eating garbage food, uh, you know, about very significant stuff, or just rural type of uh, existence, you know, where the mothers are just unhealthy with different type of viral infections. So there's a lot to be said on the broad spectrum of fetal alcohol and drug exposure. So now as you were talking, it ran through my mind um, that 
you've worked a lot with with children adopted out of um, international internationally out of orphanages and some of the the worst orphanage care and even parented some kids from that. But then we also have some of this domestically in the foster care system um, with some of these same kinds of things. However, Absolutely. This is what I want to ask you. I felt like it became clear to me pretty early on. Um, as Chaddock began to specialize in this kind of work more, and we started getting more internationally adopted children as opposed to children out of the child welfare system, I felt that pretty early on, I thought, wait a minute, these kids out of orphanage care are like a whole different ball game than these kids out of foster care. Um, it felt like completely different things were going on. And so what do you think of that statement? Well, I think that's 100% accurate and often grossly missed. I got people, and again, here's where people may think I'm too direct, but I'm going to be straight. A lot of people go internationally because they say, I don't have to deal with the birth parents. I'm thinking, but you got to deal with what they did or what they didn't do. <laughs> but yeah, also, true. I think it is a very important thing. Charlie Z and I have talked a lot about this, especially since he started working in Russia and Romania with us back in 1999. Uh, it's a level of severity. Our domestically adopted kids, we can certainly not forget that there's abuse, neglect, alcohol, drug, and trauma. But the one thing that we have that makes it a little bit more palatable, if that's even an acceptable way of looking at it, we have earlier interventions, we have social services, child protective services, we have hospital, hospital care, food, nutrition. So when they're yanked, we try to at least get them medically healthy at some rudimentary level, at better level. And we know the abuse is certainly toxic. What's interesting, what makes international adoption so complex and serious and to the point of unimaginable, I mean, and I've got 500 hours of footage of around the world that's unbelievable. There's, there's caging, there's the food is not food, it's barely edible, it's toxic food, we've taken it to our labs and samples, we know it has botulism and toxins that the kids, biochemistry gets used to it. So we've got fundamental issues, we've got alcohol exposure rampant, we've got drug exposure rampant, we've got incest, so we've got genetic problems rampant, we have that here too, especially in Appalachia, but definitely we've got incest and sex abuse. But in, in some of these institutions, it, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's condoned, it's rampant. But we also have an earlier level of profound neglect, deparation, uh, de uh, uh, neglect, uh, desperate attempts to uh, leave the kid early on at critical periods where in these countries, especially Eastern Bloc, they, they, they call it defectology. They're triaged right away and put in institutional care, isolated, alone. In, in where they just sit there all day, tied, without stimulation, no toys, no food, no shelter, no cleanliness, no hygiene, no human touch, and physical abuse if there's any acting out because it's crowd control. So they're beaten into submission. And I've seen it, I've videotaped it, my kids all experienced it, you saw the video, it was hell on earth. It was concentration camp mentality. That's Russia, Romania, Bulgaria, Moldova, Eastern Europe, Belarus, Ukraine, especially, and Albania. Uh, South America has now come up with a lot of alcohol and drug kids because that was the centers. Southeast Asia was more into isolation, neglect. It's a little bit more progressive in China and, and Vietnam now because they're using a lot of grandmother approaches and all that. But in Eastern Europe, the level of 
induced trauma, not only biological trauma where they, what came from, they walked in there, they were defective, but the level of isolationism, malnutrition, toxic exposure in the care, old medications from the 50s that they drugged them to submission, which was toxic effect leading to motor and sensory issues and brain damage, and then being beaten on top of it, and then uh, three, four, five in a bed, so you're gonna get sex abuse on top of that. It's, it's layered. And I, again, I've seen it, got 500, I've did three multiple TV shows on it. I got 500 hours of raw footage that would turn your stomach because it's such a severe, severe trauma pattern. And so people adopting from Romania, Russia, and all that stuff like that, even early, I mean, early we're out better, but two, three, four, and then now what's going on, as you're saying in Chattuck, you're seeing kids coming at eight, 10, and 12. It's like they're creatures from another planet. They have experienced something that we can't explain and prostitution, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, um, I remember uh, I thought one day, I thought, you know, the worst day in foster care is better than the, you know, best day in some of these orphanage situations. The best day in orphanage is that they have not been abused, they ate a couple times, and maybe they went to the toilet as opposed to their bed. Wow. Yeah. And that's of all ages now. That's from infancy where they're swaddled and kept in cribs 24-7, like in the Bowlby Spitz years. But mm -hmm. as they get older and the kids are neglected and then they started seeking sensory stuff and look indiscriminately attached because they run up to strangers, they're mm -hmm. beaten into submission to not, you know, act up. And so when people adopt, they just go to the front room and they see the cute, pretty cute, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Russian or, or Romanian as it was, but you know, now those studies are really clear. Dana Johnson in, in Minnesota, Charlie Zena, all, all of us who've done adoption medicine, we see there's no question that nothing will ever uh, compare to uh, the Eastern Bloc uh, institutionalization. Nothing will ever compare. And, and however, now I guess a lot of those programs have closed to the United States. So I know um, we're seeing, not, not all of them, but we're seeing more children from Ethiopia, from African countries. Um, are you seeing, so I, I think, you know, each country and different regions, as you said, has, has some different, there, there's some things that are similar and there's some things that are different in terms right. of what, what's being dealt with. So what are you seeing with children, um, being adopted from Africa and some of the, um, a lot of people are going to China now, um, too. Yeah. Boys yeah. and girls. Yeah. Well, first of all, Ukraine is still wide open, and the kids are between the ages of you know six, eight, and fifteen. So that same thing that I mentioned earlier is still going rampant. So that Ukraine's a very complex area. Uh, Africa, it all depends. I mean, Ethiopia has a very unique culture because it's 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 a you know it's a little bit more faith based, and they try to have more of a kinship type parenting. But mm -hmm. what we're seeing in some of the other parts that people have adopted from Africa, like Congo, which was shut down recently, Rwanda, Uganda. I worked in Liberia with the child soldiers and some of the ones that were recruited. What we're seeing is a lot of raping and sex abuse and child trap prostitution. So that's a big issue in Africa. Ethiopia is a little bit better controlled because they've done some good things there. Haven't been there. Jane Aronson out of New York runs a worldwide orphan outstanding work in Africa, yes. outstanding throughout Africa, but she wasn't able to touch the Ivory Coast areas, 
Rwanda, some of where the, you know, the militia and the people ran it. China has come a long way to betterment in foster care training because they're accepting, you know, Western medicine. When I lectured in China the first time, they didn't have a word for autism. And there's some of the centers are becoming a lot more uh, improved and socialization. But what's interesting about China is that the kids being placed there now are older kids instead of just babies. They're six, seven, eight, ten years old coming out of China, which is a long time to be institutionalized. They don't have a favor for some of the older kids. But if a boys that are coming out of China, which I'm seeing as opposed to just girls, you know, something's wrong with, you know, some, they had some developmental disabilities that they're still trying to get a handle on. But the care has been better. The food's been better. They're getting more foster care has been a little bit better. I'm not saying universally, but I'm seeing far better. Again, uh, Dana Johnson runs Half the Sky Foundation. They're doing great work in China. Vietnam, Jane Aronson, what she's done in Vietnam, the gra- uh, I think she calls it grandma stuff like she did in Haiti. They're doing a great deal where Vietnam has become open again, done a wonderful job of having grandmas take care of kids in orphanage care and paying them something. You know, for their for their terror, uh, Cambodia is opening up. They're going to do the same thing. And I heard Mongolia is going to open up. Now, my inside source say Russia is going to open up again, probably in, in a year or so. I can see that coming. If you just watch the news, I think you know where that's kind of coming. There's going to be a, a art of the deal on something on that one. I think yeah. we're going to have better things. The last time I was in Russia, Russia's done better with foster care. They've improved a lot of stuff. So if it opens up again, they were talking eight and older, I think we'll see at least the foundations of care, medical and psychological and fostering in the places you've referenced are better. Mm -hmm. And South America is better, but South America is wide open now, especially Colombia. But alcohol and drugs, I think Colombia was the drug capital for a long, long time. And you know, that's what we're that's what I'm seeing as a, as a professional out of Colombia and South America. Drug exposure disorders. So yeah. good cuz something's good. Ukraine bad, you know, other places are in between in Africa which is they closed Congo because it was just not only dangerous but the kids were pretty traumatized. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to traumaattachmentcenter.com. We hope you join us next week for part two of our two-part interview with Dr. Federici as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.